night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. And tonight's program is absolutely no exception to that. Thank you for joining us on uh, on the show tonight. We'll be talking about Bigfoot tonight. We've got a very special guest, actually, Dr. M- uh, Mireya Mayer. And I knew I was going to have a difficulty with the name because I keep wanting to say Maria, but it's Mireya Mayer. And uh, we're going to talk about her work as a primatologist, plus... She is one of the adventurers, explorers, co-hosts of a program on the Travel Channel called Expedition Bigfoot, now in its second season. And they've got some pretty interesting findings that they're going to be talking about. And that's one of the things we'll spend a great deal of time with tonight. So looking forward to this very much. I hope you are, too. And uh, we're not going to waste any time here because we do have two guests on the program tonight. So we're going to go to break. We'll bring... Uh, Dr. Maria Mayer into the program, and we will get started. It's beyond reality. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark, because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, welcome back to the program. It's Beyond Reality. Thanks for being here. We appreciate your support, especially if you're a podcast version of the show listener. It's really terrific that so many people, I think we're getting like 10,000 downloads a day now of the podcast version of the program. And that's really exciting because although we are a live show, it's really convenient to subscribe to the podcast and have that show automatically downloaded to your smartphone or device. And you can listen at your leisure. It makes it very, very convenient. Anyway, as promised, tonight we're going to be talking about Bigfoot. We're excited about this conversation. We've got a very special guest, Dr. Maria Mayer, joining us. Uh, Dr. Mayer is a primatologist, but also an adventurer and an explorer and a co-host of the Travel Channel television series called Expedition Bigfoot. Dr. Mayer, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I have to start out this conversation by referencing your book. The book is called uh, Pink Boots and a Machete, My Journey from NFL Cheerleader to National Geographic Explorer. You're going to have to tell us, at least give us the short version of that journey. <laughs> well, I, I titled it a little tongue-in-cheek because, as you could maybe imagine, being a woman in a pre, you know dominantly... Sure. Uh, a dom- dominant male field uh, didn- came with challenges, right? So I, in the beginning, I tried to downplay my femininity, especially as you pointed out, I was a cheerleader for the NFL. Um, so, and then dubbed in the media as the female Indiana Jones. So people couldn't make sense of that. And I was downplaying my femininity until I realized I wasn't 
not going to downplay it. Actually, I was going to embrace it. And I started sporting pink boots in the field <laughs> along with the machete that I always carried as I went through trails and, you know, deep in the Amazon and, and that sort of thing. So that's how the, the name came about. But basically the book recounts my many adventures as a National Geographic explorer on many expeditions around the world and working with animals such as elephants and gorillas and chimpanzees and lemurs in Madagascar. And of course, the discovery that I made with my colleague in uh, Madagascar of the world's smallest primate. So it's a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to be an explorer and all the adventures and misadventures that happen along the way. Well, your list of accomplishments makes it very clear that your femininity, uh, displayed or otherwise, didn't hold you back in any way. Um, it's an impressive. It did not. Yeah, it's an impressive, <laughs> impressive journey for sure. But tell me how you decided to become a primatologist. Well, I was actually a student um, pre preparing for law school. And uh, I had to take a science requirement, and I chose an anthropology class to fulfill that. And when we got on this, onto the section of primates, I just, I, I fell in love with the subject matter. I'd always loved animals as a kid. I basically had a zoo growing up at home. And I read Gorillas in the Mist, and I watched the movie, and it was literally my aha moment. Mm -hmm. I watched as you know, Diane Fossey, like these images of Diane Fossey cuddling up to these beautiful mountain gorillas. And I just remember thinking, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And it, that's especially true because as I was learning about the different primates, there were many that were, um, never, they had never been studied. They had never even been photographed and they were on the verge of extinction. So I really wanted to try and, and make a difference. And then somewhere along the way, you either are introduced to the concept of this mysterious primate. Uh, we know it as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. And then you became involved in, obviously, a television show that is exploring for evidence of this primate. How was that introduction made? And what were your thoughts of, the, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, the Bigfoot is a bit of a controversy in some circles. So mm -hmm. what were your thoughts initially? Yeah, I mean, the topic of Bigfoot is one that oftentimes, you know, elicit giggles and, and the scientific community hasn't really um, been open to it or, or embraced it for the most part. And so for me, as someone who has, um, you know, made a lifelong career built on credibility, it was, you know, sort of a, a, a scary topic, right? Um, but what I realized made perfect sense as they described what they wanted on these expeditions, which was something that was grounded in science. So they really wanted someone who could lend their expertise to uh, analyze any potential evidence that was discovered and explain the, the scientific process and the methodology involved. And um, that appealed to me. But what really made sense for why I was sort of a unbeknownst to me, a, a really good fit for this role is that I started looking at my past, uh, which was I have spent more than two decades in search of rare and elusive primates. As I mentioned, many of them never studied, uh, some of them never photographed, and even discovered a brand new species. So it's almost like I had been preparing for this moment all of those years. And I thought, well, 
I discovered the world's smallest. So just imagine if I could have a scientific breakthrough <laughs> and discovery on this, you know, I'd have come full circle. So given that they were taking a very serious uh, scientific approach to this, um, I decided to, to sign on because despite the criticism that, you know, you still, I still get from, from uh, either fans who have followed my career all these years or from, um, the scientific community, uh, to me, it, it, it's very clear why you become interested in science. I, I was interested in science because it was an opportunity to explore and answer questions that remain unanswered, right? So if that's not science, I don't know what is. And I think Bigfoot encapsulates that quite perfectly. This is something that, you know, tens and thousands of witnesses have come forward and giving, given these stories, uh, Native American folklore, uh, you have so much interest in this subject matter and the absence of evidence is not evidence that it doesn't exist. So I thought, even if all of those accounts are not true, all it takes for, all it takes is for one of them to be true. And to me, that's worth investigating. Why is it that you why do you think that the scientific community in many cases is so uh, quick to dismiss this idea? Well, as I've come to discover uh, on these expeditions, a lot of strange occurrences surround this mystery of Bigfoot. So as a scientist, I'm looking for concrete physical evidence, right? Irre something that's irrefutable. Right. Uh, to the scientific community. And a lot of the stories that you hear about uh, Bigfoot encounters uh, have other things at play that surround the experience. And I have to tell you that that's been one of the hardest things for me to consolidate, you know, on these expeditions because I've had these strange occurrences happen uh, while I've been out there and I've witnessed some things that truly science cannot explain, but I know what I, you know, I know what I saw and I know what took place. And so perhaps it's that discomfort, right? Or that, that you can't, you don't have all the answers and you can't explain all of these things away. Um, because there are a lot of, you know, like, for example, um, I was, I, I had a, a thermal, camera out and I was looking through it and I I captured this video of something large uh, giving off this uh, immense heat signature but floating above whatever this thing was is apparent head were what looked like three lights which a lot of people describe as orbs or you know whatever else right. but mm -hmm. the point being that um, these thermal cameras, they can only detect heat. They don't detect light. So I shined my light in the direction of what I was seeing on the thermal, and there was nothing there to the naked eye. And so that's something that has left me very puzzled, intrigued. There's no obvious explanation. There was no failure in the uh, camera I was using. There was not a glitch. There, there, there explanation for this and I think that is enough to make you uncomfortable and especially when you're looking for something really tangible so you know there's been 
a lot of hoaxes surrounding Bigfoot. There's right. been a lot of um, just outright lies, right? Sure. And so that doesn't help the cause. And, and it's one of the reasons that I, I'm so proud of the team that I work with. I mean, Bryce Johnson, who conducts these interviews with the witnesses, he's incredibly respectful. Um, you know, he's very open to what they're saying. And they feel, uh, you know, safe telling their stories these people that come forward, they have a lot more to lose than to gain, you know, by sharing these stories. And I think giving them that platform, and I've witnessed this actually, because now I receive dozens of, you know, emails a day from people around the country uh, sharing their story and almost always ending it with, I've never told this to any, I'm 75 years old <laughs> and I've never told this story to anyone. Not even my wife of 50 years knows what I experienced. And so these are really personal stories that still affect and in many cases haunt them and they haven't had a safe place to share that. And so that's one of the things that I really think is, is, is really great is that it's given people that platform, that voice so that maybe, you know, more and more people will come forward and, and hopefully, you know, lead, lead us in the right direction. We're going to talk about some uh, very fascinating and interesting evidence that your team has discovered uh, recently. But before that moment, based on your understanding of primates in general, you know, one of the criticisms of uh, those who would be very skeptical of the existence of Bigfoot is that, you know, we can't get a good picture. We can't find mm -hmm. evidence in the woods of this creature. If it's there and it's so large, we should easily find something, whether it's scat or something at bones, whatever it happens to be. Based on mm -hmm. your your professional um, work as a primatologist, do you have a way to explain that? No, that's a really tough question, and I've given that a lot of thought. I mean, it, it, if we're dealing with what people describe as an incredibly intelligent animal, right, who has mm -hmm. obviously been incredibly successful at remaining hidden, then it's not out of the realm of possibility that they're really, really good at it. You know what I mean? So right. they, they have found ways to hide uh, this sort of physical evidence and perhaps they have complex, you know, thought and, and society and customs and culture in the way that actually chimpanzees are now demonstrated to have. And so perhaps the, 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 there's a bur burials that are involved. I mean, there, there's so many unknowns. And again, this is all based, I have no way of answering this because until I see uh, the creature itself doing something, I can't claim right. what its behavior is. And I can't assume, you know, science, science isn't uh, based on any sort of guesswork, which is kind of what we're going on. We're going on what people are reporting. And so it's difficult to say, but it's not impossible to think that an animal, I mean, if you think about the incredible ways in which animals display uh, and use camouflage in the wilds and have amazing adaptations to remain being uh, and, and remain uh, hidden, uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility that this creature is just better at it. And let me bring in to this idea the description you just gave us of what you saw on the thermal imaging camera. You saw mm -hmm. what looked to be a figure with three orbs above its head. 
But when you looked, you didn't see that uh, that image. It was just something that was shown up as a heat signature. So therefore, you know, some people claim that that this Bigfoot phenomena could be something interdimensional or even even alien in nature. Have you given any of that any thought? Um, so, you know, my, my partner out in the field, Ronnie LeBlanc, uh, that's right up his wheelhouse. And that's something that he talks about at length and, and really believes in and um, I've heard it from different witnesses, and like I said, when people have shared these stories, um, I am a very open-minded person, and I take these uh, stories, you know, seriously, and I hear them, and I don't just dismiss them because, truthfully, all of these are, to me, pieces of a, of a puzzle that we're trying to put together, but as a scientist, that will never up, You know, I have to have something that's physical and tangible and, and science, you know, things need to be replicated and demonstrated. And so is it, is it, is it impossible? No, I think that we're learning more and more that there are a lot of, you know, there are physicists that are going on record to say, well, you know, it, it, interdimensional travel, it's actually not impossible. And here's right. the mathematical equation for it, right? right. Yeah. So, I think that there are things that we have yet to learn and understand, and that's one of the reasons that while I suppose I am the skeptic, perhaps, right, on, <laughs> yeah. on the show, um, I'm, a, I'm an open-minded skeptic. I'm open to all of these possibilities, and I've had, you know, strange occurrences that I've observed that, again, don't have a scientific explanation, so... I'm open to that stuff, but in the end, what's really going to move the needle and take this out of the, you know, legend books and into the science books is going to be irrefutable physical evidence. And that's what I'm really after. Let's, uh, we don't have a lot of time with you, I know. So we, uh, I want to move on to this discovery that was made um, as part of your efforts for Ex Expedition Bigfoot. Tell us what was found and why it's exciting. Well, talk about a shocking find, not just to me and the team, but also the geneticists that we sent out these samples to. Uh, while we were in Kentucky, we were there for several weeks, and anytime there was an area uh, that we considered an active area, right, so meaning we may have found a footprint there or a hair sample or something that made us think, okay, something was here and we want to know what left this or what did this. Right. Uh, I would take a soil sample uh, so that it could later be analyzed in a lab for uh, for environmental DNA, eDNA. And so eDNA, just to, for anyone listening, that's the genetic material that's naturally left behind by animals in the environment. And scientific analysis of these samples helps generate a snapshot of any living creatures in that area. So, for example, it would not be surprising to get, uh, you know, human DNA from these samples, uh, bear DNA, deer DNA, hawks, anything that you would expect to be in these areas would not surprise us to find in these samples because we are always shedding, all living things are always shedding DNA as, as they move uh, through space, right? So this technique has been quite revolutionary in conservation biology because it can confirm the presence of elusive and rare animals. And so 
because of the fact that we had access to to a lot of cutting edge technology, we we threw this into the toolkit. And I collected three from three different areas in, in Kentucky. And one of the areas in which I collected from was from underneath uh, a tree structure, as as Ronnie refers to it as, that we found that looked like a very elaborate, uh, carefully woven, rather large structure in the middle of the woods. And that's one thing to keep in mind when you're out in the middle of the woods everything is in sort of disarray, right? There's a lot of chaos around you in right. a sense. Mm-hmm. And what, ta- what, what really gets your attention is when you see order and something intentional and structured. And this is what we found. And uh, Ronnie uh, had told me all about these, um, you know, alleged tree structures that other people had reported. And suddenly I'm standing face-to-face in front of something that, quite clearly fit that description, and I knew right away that's what Ronnie had always had in mind when he talked about these tree structures. And so we examined uh, this area, um, we set up cameras, and we uh, took this soil sample from here and sent it off to a, a genetics lab at UCLA. And I was pretty shocked when I got the phone call that... Uh, no surprise, we got human DNA, bear DNA, hawk, all of those things. But as I'm looking, they were screen sharing with me the results. And I'm looking, and she says, uh, and surprisingly, and we're really shocked by this, we picked up thousands of reads of chimp DNA. And Ooh. I had to stop and say, wait, what? Can you repeat that? Because, I, you know, there's no way that that's what she could have said, right? Yeah. And she repeated it, and she said it again, and I looked on the chart, and there it is under genus, pan, which is the genus for chimpanzee. And, I mean, it's a head-scratcher. It definitely raises an eyebrow. We were all really shocked. Um, You know, one thing in science is you can't let emotions overrun, right? So I'm still uh, cautious with these results, and the geneticists would agree that this requires further investigating, and I hope that actually we can go back to that site. Uh, it's going to require more time in the lab, but uh, the, let's call them preliminary results, uh, are that, in fact, we had thousands of reads that something shed chimpanzee DNA uh, underneath that tree structure. So that's a really surprising and, you know, ex- exciting find, really. Any any time in science that you're you're exploring and, and, and you're seeking answers and suddenly you get an, a result that you were not expecting like this, it's, it's exciting. It sounds very exciting. I mean, there'd be no other logical explanation for chimpanzee DNA to be in Kentucky, I would imagine. Well, so, you know, and I, and I think through all those possibilities too. And obviously you can't exclude that there could have been someone with a pet chimpanzee that let it loose in the wild. Right. So like that's a plausible explanation, but it's not really a likely one because you would have seen uh, some sort of uh, reports. You would, someone would have found uh, remains. I mean, there would be, it, 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 it would it would be very unlikely that that is the case, but we know that there are no non-human primates that 
that we know of anyway, in the United States. So, um, and, and then chimpanzees are only found in Africa. They're not found in South America or Madagascar or Asia, nowhere else on the world. They're found in Africa. So what is chimpanzee DNA doing in the Appalachians? Now, um, that eDNA technique is the same technique that was uh, used when they were testing Loch Ness for evidence of creatures in, in Loch Ness, and it was revolutionary at the time. So it's obviously something that's very new and very exciting uh, in terms mm -hmm. of this type of research. Uh, one question as it relates to that, though, when you take a sample mm -hmm. from the soil or from water, how long does the DNA from the animals that visited that particular area stay in that sample? Is it a year? Is it 10 years? Is it a thousand years? Is it five, five well, days? That, that's, that's a great question. And I mean, they've been able to, first of all, um, this is a technique that is used a lot in aquatic environments because you could imagine, you know, as animals are moving through that space, right, it's kind of fl floating around and along and crashing along the, the, the ocean and the rivers. I mean, water is kind of a great medium for this. Um, but they have been able to find DNA of, uh, of species that are thousands of years old uh, looking oh, at wow. aquatic samples. So. It, it's difficult for me to say how long, and you have environmental factors at play as well. So where is it preserved best? My my uh, my hunch is that it's preserved best, for example, inside a cave where it's protected from natural elements because when you've got DNA exposed to sun sunlight in particular and, and other natural elements, you would assume that there'd be some level of degradation in that in that sample, right? So these are all things to to take in consideration. There's you don't want to go too far, let's say, with eDNA. You know, perhaps there's a sample that you wouldn't want to take to the species level, but you'd feel comfortable taking to the genus level. You know, so there's different factors involved in location, um, and is is certainly one of those things that you need to consider. Um, but it is an exciting tool. It, it has revolutionized, again, it, for, for conservation biology, when you're talking about animals that are so rare and so elusive that you can't even get a camera trap picture of them, you no longer need it. You no longer need to see them. You can, they, they have left their DNA behind, and so you're able to confirm their presence in, in different sites. But we'd sure like to see that photo anyway, anyway wouldn't we? Oh, sure we would. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't we, though? <laughs> All right, so tell me about the show. When's it on? I know you're in your second season, right? We are in our second season, and our last, uh, the season finale is March 28th. Uh, the show, new episodes air every Sunday, beginning at 4 a.m. on Discovery+. Plus. So there are people who watch it as early as 4 a.m. because I start getting tweets. Um, I'm still sleeping at that time, but I read them <laughs> later. Um, but you can basically watch it at your convenience. And if you haven't been watching so far, you're not too late to jump on the train because all of the previous episodes are on there too. And tell me where people can get your book and find out more about your work. Sure. So you can learn more about my work on my website, and that's uh, www.mareamayer.com. And uh, my book, uh, you can order it on Amazon or any any bookseller. Um, I also sell some through my website so that I can personalize them and send them out to people. Um, but yeah, and then social media. I'm on Instagram. And uh, if you want to follow me along there, I like to post 
some behind the scenes stuff and, and new things that we're finding along the way on there. So yeah, come and join the journey. And before I let you go, a bit of a personal question. When did you get your doctorate at Stony Brook? When was that? Oh my goodness. That was 12, 12 years ago. I'm just, the only reason I ask is my cousin mm-hmm. is a professor at Stony Brook um, in the biochemistry department, and I thought maybe you'd run into him. Does the name George Baldo mean anything to you? Oh, the name does sound very familiar. What a small world. Yeah, yeah. I, he ended up leaving Stony Brook in, to go teach a, a gifted uh, high school class. I'm, I'm not, not exactly. Something that the state put a pilot well, program together for. So that that. That's wonderful. I'm uh, I'm now in Florida. I'm at Florida International University, and I'm I'm the director of exploration and science communications. And oh, wow. um, it's been it, it's been a, a great journey because now I get to talk to um, other other faculty and and scientists and professors about how to communicate their science and their stories and share those because I think it's so important to put those out there and make them relevant and and get people inspired to care about the planet. Absolutely. Uh, That's great work. I appreciate you coming on the program. I know your time is very limited, but I do hope we'll be able to get you back on because so many of the things we talked about today, uh, we could get into much more depth with, and I'd like to be able to do that at some point. I'd be delighted to. Let me know. All right. Once again, thank you, Dr. Maria Mayer. And again, Um, The television show is called Expedition Bigfoot, and you can catch it on Discovery Plus. It's beyond reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. So there's this this video that's gone viral on the Internet, um, and it's actually, I don't know if it's gone viral or not. But the other night when we were doing the program, of course, Jay, you know, I do a YouTube stream, and the um, people caught a, a, a thing happening behind me. That's kind of spooking me out a little bit. Are you talking the paper? No, 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 no. The paper, that that thing is just because I have the heater blowing. But there, yeah. there was this little um, white image that came out of the television that sits behind me, went into the little candle holder I have, then came back out and went off and did its own thing. Um, I've watched the video. It's uh, It comes out of me, according to some people. It actually comes from me to the TV, to the candle thing. There's been a lot of strange things that have come out of here. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not going to argue that. But uh, it's a pretty interesting video, and uh, I haven't had time to really sit down and analyze it. It was from, like, last Wednesday night's show, I believe. Um, but a lot of people are talking about it. It's, it's pretty cool. I'm going to have to take a look at it. I'll have to check that out. Um, hey, has this daylight saving thing screwed you up? No, it hasn't at all. Actually, my uh, it's my hours are so bizarre anyway that it, it I don't even follow a clock half the time. So it doesn't matter too much. I truly don't feel like we need it anymore. I think we well, should just leave it leave it where it is now and just just roll with it. There's a lot of people that believe that. Um, and and if you look at the reasons that it was put into place, a lot of those reasons don't exist anymore. So I guess it might make sense to reexamine this at this yeah, point. The, you know, the the whole fallback one is what screws me. Let me see. Fall back. Yeah. yeah well, actually, that's, that one's not bad because you get an extra hour. Yeah, but it screws me up. It gets dark too early. And, <laughs> well, and everything else. It, it just, does. It does change change that for sure. Screws everything up. Yeah. I mean, there, there's. We could go live, uh, you know, closer to the equator, and you'd have a longer day. I mean, oh, geez, you way. give me a 24 hour day. I, I'm sure I could fill it up. <laughs> or you go up to uh, uh, Alaska, parts of Alaska that don't see the sun for six months. That'd yeah, be an interesting I, thing. Yeah, too. that would suck. That would suck. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I, I, I think there's a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of. I know some states have uh, have decided to opt out of the changing of the time. Yeah. Well, Arizona, I guess, doesn't. Do I it think anyways. Indiana is another one. Yeah. I'm, I'm not well, certain, and, but. And I 
know that there was actually some something that in Congress are trying to pass something about doing away with it, which is the only time I'll support a politician. Yeah, <laughs> when they vote for I, it, yeah, I, they'll screw everything else up, but I'll support them on <laughs> uh, that. I tell you, they screw everything up. All right, so uh, we've got a, a completely different topic to occupy the second hour of the program tonight. Our guest uh, will be Neil Parks. Neil is a paranormal investigator and a researcher. Something he, I know stuff about. This is awesome. He's been doing it for a long time. He's an award-winning paranormal author. And we're going to be talking about some of his books and some of his experiences. And Neil, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a pleasure to have you on tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for a coming real pleasure. on, Neil. I like the overall feeling and the vibe of the show so far. Well, thanks. Um, glad to have you on. Tell us how you got your start and your interest in paranormal topics. Wow. Well, it began at a very early age with uh, something as simple as records you would buy at a yard sale with Vincent Price reading Edgar Allan Poe, narrating it. So that got me into the macabre and to the supernatural and stories my grandmother told me when I was a very young child about uh, the back hills of Kentucky, and the mountain witches and strange lights from the sky and uh, cryptozoological-type creatures that live in the woods. And those stories just stuck with me throughout my entire life and encountering things of my own that I couldn't explain, that I really couldn't speak freely about, because at that time, in 1986, and, and even before that, you really couldn't speak openly about that type of phenomenon because no one really understood it, or they would say that you worked for the Inquirer. At that time, it was all yellow journalism, and just something funny you would see on a, on a fake newspaper. And my grandmother passed away in 2005, so I took it upon myself to collect those stories that she told me and put them into a book to see if anyone else would be interested in hearing or reading those stories. Well, no, and no, no, five no, no, no. to six books later now, uh, people are still enjoying what I write. And that was a common thing, though. I mean, especially back in the 80s and so forth. If you talk about the paranormal, people, it was more, they they mocked you. They made fun of you. And uh, it's only over the last, you know, 15, 20 years where it's really opened up and people have been more than willing to share their stories and, and stuff when it comes down to the paranormal. More and more people seem to be getting involved or being more open to the possibility of it. Completely. Uh, you know, a short while ago, there was this, this little show, I think it was called Ghost Hunters, that really opened the door for a lot of people. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, oh, yeah, that was you. No, I, I, I knew it was you the whole time. Anyway, go <laughs> But no, and uh, that was the main that was the main focus of when we when we finally agreed to do Ghost Hunters because we turned down doing TV like five different times was the fact that somebody was going to do it and how were they going to portray the field and at least if we did it and we did it the way we've always looked at it we could try to make it where it wasn't such a taboo subject people were more willing to talk about it and uh, and I think we did open the doors on that which, uh, you which really did, helped yeah. out a lot of people and so we accomplished what we were after. You really helped in my book sales, too. I appreciate that. <laughs> all right. Well, the mutual love and society here. Um, <laughs> in all honesty, uh, Neil, if if you were into the macabre before you were into the paranormal, um, there is a transition there that you must have gone through because there are a lot of horror movie fans that aren't necessarily paranormal fans and vice versa. What's the transition for you? Well, it's I'm sort of an enigma because I love both Star Wars and Star Trek. And you're not supposed to, but I do. Uh, a lot of those things, I just sort of carved my own identity and 
having an interest and a fascination with with horror, um, my spiritual life is what has drawn me more into the paranormal, because uh, I've been very active and attached to my faith, and it's sort of become a part of my research and what I do and what I base it on. And as you started to learn more about the paranormal and you started to hear these stories from uh, your grandmother and you started to collect them, um, at what point did you start to decide that you were going to maybe research these as opposed to just tell the stories? At around the age of 11 and 12, I decided I wanted to start walking through and exploring abandoned homes, caving systems, uh, walking through the woods looking for Mothman or Bigfoot or, well, I never went as far south to where Chupacabra would be, but it was still fun to read about. Uh, things like that, fascinations with UFOs, the Twilight Zone, uh, sci-fi television with more UFOs and alien phenomenon, and then a new breath of life in 1993 when the X-Files launched and tied all of those things together in one show where you had uh, UFOlogy, serialology, cryptozoology, and uh, spirituality, spiritual warfare, so on and so forth. It just really kind of made it click for me at that time. Um, you can visit Neil at his website, parksparanormal.wixsite.com slash Neil. Neil, again, thanks for being here. Um, let's talk about your experiences as a paranormal investigator. Have, have you been doing that part of your work for a long time? I have, actually. Uh, for many years now, and I've been a guest speaker at different festivals and conventions. For example, the Mothman Festival, uh, the Mid-Ohio Paranormal Con, uh, speaking at libraries, schools, and uh, believe it or not, sometimes churches. Actually, JV and I were supposed to be at the Mothman Festival last year. We just didn't make it. That's right. Well, that's too bad. That would have been a great stop for you. You plan on making that anytime? We do. We we're hope hopefully we can make the next one, but we'll yeah. see how it goes. We're both we're both majorly interested in the Mothman story um, to begin with. Plus, we hear that's a great event. It really is. It's a, it's grown at, at epic proportions. People from as far as Ireland, New Jersey, and Australia have come to it. Did you say Ireland, New Jersey, yeah, and Australia? I mean, because one of the one of those is not like the other. It's <laughs> yeah, I like to mix it up a little. Yeah, you should. So, yeah, yeah, Ireland, New Jersey, and Australia. And how many people do they usually get out there to the? Oh, a good weekend. Normally about thirty to forty thousand. Wow. Which generally is the population of Chillicothe, Ohio itself. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, you uh, mentioned giving the, your talk and, and addressing people in churches. Um, what is your opinion, and how do you feel about the? Uh, view of the paranormal by most of uh, the religions, particularly Christian Christianity? Uh, a lot of Christians uh, don't know how to approach it adequately. Uh, they're scared of it. They're not informed enough about it. They refuse to be informed about it, and they're quick to cast stones at it without truly understanding the significance of the paranormal and spirituality within Christianity. I mean, there's nothing more paranormal or supernatural than the virgin birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, and the the enigmatic creator itself, that being God. And obviously, he didn't tell us everything. So I I rely on that, and when talking to people, they often bring that up. How can I believe 
and other alien races if I'm a Christian, or how can I believe in ghosts if I believe in heaven and hell? And I also believe in purgatory. I believe in limbo. Um, water well, monsters. Ex- exactly. And, and that's, and that's the thing. A lot of, a lot of their teachings actually cover topics of the paranormal. So it, it just, it doesn't make any sense that they wouldn't have any belief in it or they'd be terrified of it. Precisely. I mean, it just, it, it sort of started more, I think, with the Church of England and with um, settlers coming from Europe to here. Uh, it seemed to be a big shift in the Church as a whole with the ideology itself when they moved from there to here and started setting up Puritanism, Quakerism, and then that stemmed into Evangelicalism. Which is, again, crazy because in Ireland and places like that, they're very... They're, they've always been very open to the whole uh, paranormal. Oh, yeah. Very open to spirituality in Ireland, especially. The Highlands. But when they get over here, they sort of close that off? Uh, they're sort of forced to, to close it off when they come here. Uh, America really is just completely backwards on so many levels when it comes to um, art, culture, society, and spirituality. You have um, been doing this long enough that it clearly, uh, uh, well, I'm not saying clearly, it, it has affected your family life. Tell, talk to us about how this stresses your family life. Well, for a while, um, I had to walk away from writing, researching, doing any kind of investigation because I wasn't prioritizing adequately. So I really had to do some deep soul searching, um, evaluate what was most important to me, and figure out a way to mix the two without neglecting the other. So I was able to balance everything better by incorporating my family more into it. And my kids are all into it. Uh, my wife's always been a part of it, but she's more actively involved now. And I managed to cut a few toxic people out of my life, which uh, made the overall experience better for me in the end. And I think it's important to involve your family. Like my my children, they're they're all highly interested in the paranormal. My three daughters, my my older daughters, Samantha, Haley, and Satori. Satori investigates with the Taps Home Team. Haley's been involved in the paranormal. Uh, Samantha's still involved uh, very much in the paranormal. And I think that's important because you can also you can have a lot of that bonding time with your family while you're out doing this this other stuff as well. And I think that it's just it's greatly important when it comes down to that. And that's why I enjoyed being able to bring my kids on the road and film with them while doing this as well. So being able to merge that. Especially with their reaction, a child's reaction when encountering something is priceless. Well, yeah, because it's not like they're born with fear of this. It's what's taught Mm -hmm. to them. It's what's taught to them during the time they're growing up. And if you've always been open with them and, and taught them that there's really nothing, not much to fear, not nothing to fear, but not much to fear when it comes down to this, um, I think it's it's important because it, it really helps them in, in a lot of these areas. You know, like I always tell my kids, the real monsters and the real things to fear is mankind. Yeah, I, I tell everybody, I you know, they say, don't go scary. No, I'm afraid of the living, not the dead. I mean, the living, <laughs> the living are the ones that can yeah. cause you great pain and, and punishment. Precisely. 
All right, so we're going to take a break here in just a minute, um, and then we'll come back and continue talking with our guest, Neil Parks. Don't forget, we've got some great shows coming up on Beyond Reality Radio this week. In fact, tomorrow night, Isaac Arthur, who is a science communicator, will be with us to talk about physics, astronomy, space exploration, the Fermi paradox, and just general futurism. And, Jay, I have a feeling this is one of those that's going to make our heads hurt a little bit. Probably. And (laughs) Wednesday, Wednesday's going to make our heads hurt a little bit, though. We're going to be talking with Patricia Steer and Mark Sargent. Mark and Patricia are authors on the Flat Earth Theory, and we'll be discussing their new documentary on Netflix called Behind the Curve. Now, if you haven't seen it and you have Netflix, check it out. It's an interesting show, and JB and I have mixed feelings on this. We talk about how, honestly, I think the way it was cut and edited sort of tried to push the whole idea that they were a little odd and off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think it should have just been an unbiased thing. Give us their opinion. Give us the evidence to support it either way and, and go from there. But yeah, I don't know. but if you do get a chance to watch the documentary between now and having uh, Patricia and Mark on the program Wednesday night, I recommend it because uh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that sh- that that film, that documentary. We will obviously talk about Flat Earth because we won't be able to avoid that with these two guests and not that we would want to. Uh, but I really do want to get their take on the f- making of that film and what they thought of the aftermath. So, Neil, is the Earth flat around? Um, I'm sorry. Is there a what? Is is the Earth flat? <laughs> That's a good around? answer. <laughs> you got nothing. Um, I believe I believe fat bottom worlds, girls make the world go around. <laughs> there you go. That's the answer we're looking for. All right. So the phone number is eight four four six eight seven seven six six nine. We're going to take a quick break. A lot more to come. You listen to Jason and JV Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back after this. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J O H A W. Our guest this hour of the program is Neil Parks. Neil's a paranormal researcher, an investigator, and an author. He's written several books. And, uh, Neil, the books, uh, the most recent book is Haunted Enough, Terrifying Tales to Tell Your Friends. Um, most of your books uh, are collections of stories that you've gathered from various sources um, to share with folks. Uh, are they all paranormal? Are they legends? What, what do the uh, stories make up? Well, the first three books I've written, the first one is Paranormal Chronicles, Tales of Humor, Horror, and the Absolutely Strange. And that one is a a little bit of the stories my grandmother related to me, as well as a couple from a few aunts and uncles along the way, uh, a few people that have passed away, unfortunately. They are dedicated, uh, the book is dedicated to them and their memory. Uh, Other stories in it are experiences of my own, and uh, some investigations that I've been on that turned out not to be so paranormal and uh, had a funny twist at the end. So I had a little fun with that book just to see how it would go, uh, you know, sort of dipping my uh, my toe in the water of literary literary world to see if people would take me seriously as an author. And the second book, Haunted Chillicothe, is all about Chillicothe, Ohio, where I live. It's Ohio's first capital and is actually one of the most um, haunted locations in south-central Ohio. Uh, The book is done very well locally, and believe it or not, a lot of people that have heard of me have ordered that book as well, uh, along with my more uh, nationally known books, and have enjoyed reading it as well. Now, the third book is Haunted Holidays, uh, which is a collection of short stories of strange and unusual paranormal happenings between Halloween 
Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And I tied in a lot of um, legend and myth into that, as well as more stories geared towards spirituality and miracles, uh, sort of like blessings from angels and whatnot. And the most recent book that I've released, uh, which is Haunted Enough, uh, you'll notice there's a question mark at that title at the end of it. Uh, that was basically just a, uh, realizing that this is not my final book, Haunted Enough, question mark. Uh, there will be something following that, of course, but my current book I'm working on is an actual novel, not a compilation of short stories. It's going to be a full-on chapter-by-chapter story um, written from just my mind and trying to tie in things from each book that I've written already as well as things that I've yet to write into an actual story setting and a group of characters. Now, do you also go back and research some old, well-known haunted-type cases and uh, see if you're able to figure out what truly happened in those locations as well, or is it just mainly things you know, that in your area and, and stuff of that nature? Uh, you mean basically tackling a cold case myself to see if I can put an end to it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, something like that I've not really tackled much of um, other than just taking stories and stories and legends from people like the Carnegie Library in Washington Courthouse. It's supposed to be a haunted library. And people that have worked there or people that have been there have relayed stories to me, and I basically came to um, an inconclusive conclusion in the end. I really couldn't put an end to it. It just It's going to be a legend as long as that building stands. Uh, digging up any kind of... Uh, I guess, an attempt from another researcher or group where they could not come up with a conclusion. I've not really done any more or any better than anyone else in that avenue. Okay. So with all, with all the investigations and research and everything else you've done, what's the most unusual or the weirdest encounter that you've ever experienced? Oh, goodness. One of the weirdest would have to be a uh, an area in South East Ohio. Um, it's near Salt Fork Lake. The, it was a group of guys that were um, setting up trail cams in the area, and something kept getting past their property line and getting into their chickens and into a few of their smaller um, livestock animals. And they came to me because of a mutual friend we had and they knew the type of research that I did and the stuff that I was posting on the Internet before I had ever written a book. Uh, people had been, a few select people had been following me online, and they caught wind of me. Then they reached out to this mutual friend of ours who then contacted me and said they really wanted to talk to me about figuring out what is attacking their livestock because they set up trail cams and they want to set up a security system around their house that would allow lights to come on and the cameras to engage due to motion. And they bought this whole pack from Radio Shack. Now, granted, this was like the early 2000s, so that type of technology was relatively archaic compared to what we have now. But back then, you did, you felt as if it wasn't going to get any better anytime soon. So they had this whole pack from Radio Shack. I set it up for them, motion sensors, uh 
the lights would come on when someone was in the area, that they had these marked and set up, and the cameras were set up for night vision. And we basically waited. So in the end, the conclusion that I came to, it was coyotes that were getting in and doing this. And the trail cams would show something big and hairy run past it to the right or to the left, and that's all you saw on the trail cam was something big and hairy. But then when uh, you had the surveillance footage picking out these coyotes in action, tearing these chickens apart, I'm like, well, gentlemen, what you have here is a group of coyotes that are coming in and doing this damage. You know, there's no Sasquatch here doing this. There's no werewolf. I'm sorry. I don't uh, have here what you're looking for. So a couple of days go by, and I am um, getting ready for bed late one night, and I get a phone call from a mutual friend, and he says, you're not going to believe what was on the news down there. I said, what? The guys that we know, they went to the local media and said that you had video footage of a werewolf. So what they did was they turned around and tried to put a sensationalism spin on this, and they provided the footage of the big, hairy creature running back and forth past the trail cam, but nothing really beyond that, nothing that we had from the actual footage of the coyotes in action tearing the chickens apart. So I contacted the media after we found out about this story and got my my own eyes on the uh, news segment that was on showing these guys talking about the werewolf creature they have in their backyard and that everyone should be on alert. Your children could be in danger. Your pets could be devoured. Uh, it was insane. So I contacted the news, told them exactly what it was that was there, that I had the video footage of the coyotes in action, tearing the chickens apart, that no one in that area is in danger. These guys are just making that up for attention. And they had to retract the story, and these guys were like branded scam artists and so forth. And I got a phone call from the main guy that was living on that property. He was the one they called Ah. And he said, if we ever catch you in this area again, we're going to make sure no one ever finds you. So I'm very selective about what I investigate now because of that. Well, and do you find that in most cases that you're able to debunk or figure out what's truly going on? It has nothing to do with the paranormal? I've been lucky in that aspect. Uh, There have been quite a few cases I've cracked where it's not anything more than just um, issues with vehicles driving by and reflecting off something in the house that casts what looks like a translucent light bouncing across the wall or interference with baby monitors. Uh, There's a lot of simple explanations to certain things when people get hypersensitive about it. And that's the thing. You do find that a lot of people, a lot of people are, they're not trying to be mischievous. They're, they just misunderstand what's, what's going on and you're able to help them out. But you do get those who, try to be a little sneaky about it or who are living in hopes that the place is truly haunted or something really is going on. I mean, we've, we've even had guys, a guy built a speaker inside a wall trying to prove his house was haunted because he wanted to be on a show. So you do, you do get that and you need to look out for that. And, uh, you know, you see, you get the people who are attention seekers, but most of the time it's people just misunderstanding. Correct. Uh, correct. Uh, there was one case, uh, I'll, make this short one case where I proved that something wasn't haunted pertaining to this woman's house. She had been saying for years it was, and she even had um, 
TV shows like the show Sightings, something similar to that. It was interested in doing a walkthrough in her house and have a, a professional psychic there to communicate with whatever she said was there. Well, I did. She was at one time living here in my hometown, and I did a walkthrough. I went through with my small group, uh, checked everything out. I had a historian with me, a few other people that were experts in the field that were not directly affiliated with my group, and there was absolutely nothing in this house. There were things she had set up to make it look and feel and sound as if something was going on, uh, like she would talk about phantom odors all the time. And she had stuff set up in the uh, vent ducts to blast uh, during certain parts of the walkthrough that aroma. And I pulled the vent duct, the uh, the vent off the side of the wall and found these little potpourri sashes and stuff set up there. And she was humiliated and angry and then went to um, Amazon and completely blasted my book, Haunted Chillicothe and Haunted Holidays, as a means of revenge. Uh, let's jump to our phone lines here and try to grab a listener call. This is TJ from Rhode Island. Hey, TJ, welcome to the show. Hey, guys, thank you for taking the call. And I have a question for your guest because it always puzzles me whether it's the place or the personality that can determine a haunting. So my question is, for example, if someone went to Gettysburg to experience Confederate soldier afterlife activity, have you ever or have you ever heard of people who go there, may experience that, but then also get someone personally connected to them and unrelated to the locale, or have they gone there experienced, say, no Confederate activity, but only gotten someone connected to them personally? Well, Great I've question. been to Gettysburg a few times. Uh, it's really an amazing place, and that's interesting you brought that location up. Uh, that's been one that I refer to quite often when uh, speaking publicly. Uh, for example, location, person, personality. Uh, is it the location itself or the person itself that's haunted? Now, the battlefield of Gettysburg, for example, if you were to build a residential neighborhood on that battlefield, every single house would be haunted, not because of the house itself, but the property. So the person can act as a conduit when going in to a location like that and tap into existing energy frequencies, as I call it. So when they're there, they could feel somewhat of a personal attachment to it. Uh, say you're on the side where there were more Union soldiers and you were of a Confederate um, a descendant of Confederates or you were of a Southern background that energy might somehow act as a positive negative to you, and you could have an adverse effect as a result of it because of the Confederate bloodline in you. I know it's a stretch, but that's a theory. It's a working theory, but that could explain a lot right, of what My question, though, was more, for example, locations. do they go there to see someone within the Confederacy or the Union, and then let's say their, their long-lost pet shows up instead? Or with, or in conjunction with, with one of the local um, specters. So um, a person shows up, and then like a, a lost, a long lost loved one who died in the war shows up. Is that what you're asking? No, no, someone who is personally connected to someone at this point in time, so that it would be the location enables that to happen, or is yeah. it the personalities of the people who died there stamped on the location that limits you only to seeing those people? Have you ever heard I of believe, that? I believe that area to be strictly residual. Oh, okay. And, 
I, I mainly you would go and things would completely act out what they did before. Um, I myself have never experienced an intelligent haunt there. I've only experienced residual. There are other people that would claim otherwise. I mean, it's, it's yeah. yeah. Well, I think also what TJ's saying is, does the place emit enough energy where if somebody's going to this location in hopes of seeing one of these old old type spirits, um, <clears throat> but in return, while they're there, their own uh, loved one that might have just recently passed appears in front of them. Is it Has that ever happened due to a place having enough energy to actually help fuel a situation like that? I would believe that to be entirely possible. Because you've got one yet or I had a um, chance to document it. That strong level of energy existing there already. I mean, it's entirely possible for something that is intelligent, that recently passed, that is attached to you, to manifest through that existing level of electromagnetic energy, because that's an existing field. Yeah, or near a high limestone deposit area that's giving off energy as well, able to mm-hmm. manifest itself due to the energy and or the circumstances being correct in that area. TJ, thank you for that great questions. Uh, we're just out of time. And, uh, Neil, we, we need to know where people can get a hold of the books. Uh, you can get the books through Amazon, of course, uh, Goodreads, or through Lulu.com, which is my publisher. And, of course, my links are on your website. Uh, where it has the description of what we were discussing tonight and who I am. Well, Neil, thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us, and we got to talk to you again at some point for a longer period of time. It was a real pleasure. I, I appreciate the invite. Thank you. You have a great night. What is this Lulu thing? I've heard this a couple times now. Lulu, is this a new, it's, new well, you publisher go, direct yeah, it's kind Lulu, of thing? It's a press yeah. system, so gotcha. it's a nice yeah. little setup. Awesome. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, come back and wrap things up. You're listening to Jason JV, Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back after this. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. It's tomorrow night. Isaac Arthur is a science communicator. He'll be with us to talk about physics, astronomy, space exploration, the Fermi paradox, and just general futurism. Um, again, that's all tomorrow night with Isaac Arthur. I was going to say that they need to change that song, Smoking in the Boys' Room. It's got to be like vaping in the Boys' Room. Vaping, uh, e-sigging in the Boys' Room. Yeah, just getting more up to date, I guess, right? <laughs> right. And Modernize then, it. <laughs> then Wednesday, we've got Patricia Steer and Mark Sargent on. Mark and Patricia are authors on the Flat Earth Theory. We're going to be also discussing their new documentary on Netflix called Behind the Curve. So make sure you check that out. It's uh, It's interesting. And Thursday night, we've got Cheryl Lynn Darcy, who is a botanical explorer, a natural history author, and an artist. And she specializes in the study of floroethnobotany, which is a connection between us and flowers. It can be cultural, can be metaphysical, can be spiritual, can be medicinal, and so on. Uh, she does study all plants and can talk about just about anything that has to do with plants. Well, there you go. If you haven't yet, head over to Facebook.com slash Beyond Reality Radio. Like that Facebook page for us. Then head to BeyondRealityRadio.com. Check all our stations out. Download the free smartphone apps and a lot more. But that's going to pretty much do it for us uh, tonight. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. You listen to Jason and JV, Beyond Reality Radio. Catch you all tomorrow night.
Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.